Father, we thank you that you've saved us. You, you are a great God. And as the psalmist said, who is like you? Who is like you, God? There is none like you. And yet, you sent your Son. He set aside his glory. He took on humanity. Dressed himself as us. Resided on this earth among sinners. And died and paid our penalty. Sinners that are saved. Lord, we confess to you that we are prone to wander still. We are not people who have yet perfected life. We are completely dependent upon your spirit. We're dependent upon your word. We're dependent upon you in our lives, Lord. And when we wander, we are dependent upon your spirit to provoke our heart, to prick us, to cause us to confess that and come back close to you. We thank you that you never leave us, nor forsake us. Again, this morning, we would ask you, Father, that you would capture our hearts. We would be gripped with your glory, your person, all who the Lord Jesus Christ is. And it would cause us to be men, women, boys and girls who love the Lord Jesus Christ and desire to walk with him. May we keep short accounts when we walk through this life and may quickly walk with you again. Lord, we thank you for all that you're doing here and abroad, Lord, and that you allow us to join you. Thank you for letting us plant seeds and water them, but we know it is you who gathers the harvest. And we would pray, Lord, that you would continue to gather a harvest of souls. Save people, Lord. Draw them to you. And if it be your will, entrust them to this ministry that we would care for them and grow them into a deeper love with, for the Lord Jesus Christ and his word. We know that new life is beautiful. And we know that new life in Christ is the greatest gift man can ever have. And so we pray this morning that you would strengthen us today to realize that we are new creatures. Old things have passed away. And we have a great opportunity to bring you glory, to live today in good circumstances and difficult ones, that we can exalt you. Lord, we thank you for those around the world who do that with us, missionaries that we support, others that are out there proclaiming the gospel unashamed. Lord, give them favor. Give them strength today. We thank you for this opportunity to look into your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, let me invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 11. This will be a bit of a jumping off text, and then we're going to go back to our, our regular text in Mark chapter 6. I had Ryan read that passage because it is a very important passage of a statement that Jesus makes about John the Baptist. And while you're turning there, I just want to remind you a couple of things. Isn't it, isn't it amazing how, when you study the scriptures, that the Lord Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, exalts humans? He, he does that in his ministry. In fact, I jot it down just a few. Luke chapter 7, there's a sinful woman, and she has gathered at a banquet with Christ. And the Pharisees are coming unglued because here's this sinful woman who is washing the feet of Jesus. She's at the feet of Jesus. She's consumed with Jesus, and Jesus exalts her. He exalts her. Mary Magdalene, the woman, the Bible tells us, that was filled with seven spirits. He speaks of this woman in her great faith. She is the very first person 
who sees Jesus after the resurrection. He exalts people. How about the Roman centurion in Luke chapter 7 who has a sick servant? Jesus says, I have not seen this type of faith in all of Israel. Jesus exalts people for their faith in God. One of my favorite stories is the Canaanite woman. She's not a Jew. In this time, she would not have any inheritance towards Yahweh that she would be taught that. And yet she comes to Jesus and begs of him. And he, he says, that the table's not for you. But he, she goes, and remember this, she says, even the dogs beg for the crumbs. And Jesus turns to her and exalts her. And says, your faith has made you well. Blind Bar- Bartimaeus, <laughs> I love blind Bartimaeus. He's the guy alongside the road. You remember this guy? And Jesus is coming and he's crying out, Jesus, son of David. <laughs> and they're going, hey, knock it off. Hush, you, you don't want your kind here. <laughs> and he just keeps crying out because his faith is in this one who's coming down the street. And the Lord Jesus exalts him for his faith. Mark chapter 5, we saw this earlier, this bleeding woman who quietly comes and touches Jesus because she believed, she believed she could, he could heal her. And Jesus exalts her faith. But there is none uh, given such a high report from Jesus as John the Baptist. And he is the subject of our Mark 6 text. If you look at this Matthew text that Ryan read for us, you see this one coming out. He was not maybe what, what they expected. He, Matthew records here as Jesus speaks that he, he, he came out to you. He was dressed in soft clothing. Isn't that just for kings? You know, he's dressed in a camel's hair with a leather belt. He's eating locusts dipped in honey. He, he's living a little different exotic life. And yet Jesus says, this is the one. This is the one the Old Testament spoke of. This is the one, the forerunner, who has come to prepare your hearts for me. And then in verse 11, Matthew chapter 11, verse 11, he makes this great statement. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Wow, what a statement. What an amazing statement that the God of creation makes of another, of a human here. And yet, He says this, yet the one who is the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. And so Jesus is here introducing John the Baptist, saying, in essence, he is the last of the prophets. He's the last Old Testament prophet. All of those Old Testament prophets, when we study their writings, we're all speaking of a coming Messiah. Every one of them study their writings. It's all leading towards Christ. But John is the greatest. Because he got to see the one they all spoke about. Isn't that an amazing thought? The Elishas and Moses and the Nahums and Habakkuk's and, and Isaiah's and Jeremiah's and all the way down through there all spoke of a coming Messiah, a deliverer. But John the Baptist got to see him. But then there's a little phrase, and I want to encourage your hearts today at the end of this, verse 11. It says, yet the one who is the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. You know what he's talking about? He's talking about you. That's what he's talking about. Those who have seen the redemption of Christ, who understand his atoning work on the cross, 
on the other side of the great prophets, us on the other side of the cross, who say, that's Jesus, he died for me and took my sins away. Oh, it doesn't matter if you're rich, poor, no matter what heritage you came from, you are the greatest in the kingdom. Isn't that quite a statement that Jesus makes here? And yet, like John, we all play a role. God has a role for us. A role for us to spread the gospel, to be part of his family, part of his kingdom. And every one of us have a role. John's, as we'll see now, as you turn to John chapter, excuse me, Mark chapter 6 with me, we'll see his role came to an end in this text. Several thoughts I want to give you this morning as we work our way down there. But first of all, I want to start with, number one, the danger of a false understanding of Jesus. The dangers of a false understanding of Jesus. Look with me at just the first couple of verses here. Verse 14. And King Herod heard of it. What's he hearing of is back to our context. The disciples have been sent out. They were preaching Christ. They were healing in his name. They were given extraordinary powers to draw authority to them to show who Christ was. So King Herod, hearing of this, for his name, that would be Jesus' name, had become well known. And the people were saying, well, John the Baptist has risen from the dead. Because in this part, right here within this, the, uh, the... the, the time frame, John is dead, and there's going to be a rehearsal of what happened here. So right now, he says, the people are saying, here's what Herod's hearing, John the Baptist has risen from the dead. And that is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others were saying, oh, he's Elijah. And others were saying, he is a prophet, like one of the old prophets. And when Herod heard of it, he kept saying, John, whom I beheaded? It is risen. So here we begin to understand a story that, that the, the gospel account, God wants us to understand what happened in John's life, but also understand the wickedness of man that we live among. The first part of verse 14 gives us an understanding that, that while apparently the disciples had gone um, out, they did what they were supposed to do. Remember, in our last text, they were sent out to proclaim Christ. And what's really neat about this text is they did. And they did it so well that King Herod heard about it. It got all the way back to him. And so the result was that the name of Christ was proclaimed. And even this wicked king, this wicked, really kind of a puppet king, he doesn't have a lot of power, we'll explain that later, he hears about the Lord Jesus Christ. And now he begins to be consumed whether he's John the Baptist risen from the dead. Notice at the end of verse 14, they're saying John the Baptist is risen from the dead. That's where this miraculous power is coming. Because people had not, they had not seen Jesus. Herod had not seen Jesus. A lot of people had not seen Jesus because the disciples were talking about him. Remember we said this last time we were in, in Mark here a couple of weeks ago. We said for the very first time, it was not Jesus doing the instruction. It was his disciples. His disciples were doing it, so they had not seen Jesus, and they were beginning to speculate that Jesus might be John the Baptist raised from the dead. Now, certainly, if he could beat death, now I think about what's going through Herod's head, then what powers might he have? And if you murdered him, 
and he's back from the dead. <laughs> oh, you can see Herod's mind starting to work here. Look at verse 15 with me. But others were saying he's Elijah, and others were saying he's a, he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. Well, the Jews knew that the Old Testament um, taught that Elijah would precede um, the Messiah. They knew that. But Matthew, it's interesting that text that Ryan read, Matthew chapter 11, 13 through 14, said that they failed to understand. You remember that? They failed to understand. If you look back with me at Matthew chapter 11 real quickly, I want you to see this. Verse 12, for the days of John the Baptist, Matthew 11, verse 12, until now the kingdom of heaven suffers violence and violent men take it by force. This is really speaking of Herod in a lot of ways and many others. Verse 13, for all the prophets in the law prophesied until John. Now look at this. And if you are willing to accept it, John himself is Elijah who is to come. So in Micah, this last this last minor prophet before the dark ages, before the silent ages, really, of between the intertestamental time, Micah says there's one who's going to come before the Messiah, and it's Elijah. And Jesus says that was John the Baptist. And so the Jews knew that he must come, so that's why they're saying back in our text here in verse 15, he's Elijah. This, this might be him who precedes the Messiah. Others may have been thinking of that great text in Deuteronomy 18.15, that there was a prophet that was coming like Moses. And so that's why they would say, well, maybe this is that prophet. Or, or even the prophets of old. Because they did miracles. Think about Elijah and Elisha and other prophets in the Old Testament. They raised, dead, they raised the dead. Uh, uh, the widow's son. Um, they, they gave oil that just kept flowing out of jars. Um, they called fire down from heaven. So, so they're beginning to think, well, maybe this is possibly one of them. But whatever people were saying, Herod was afraid. And you see that in this text. He's, he greatly desires to see if Jesus is indeed John the Baptist. Just listen to this. this is the Luke account. We won't take time to turn there. But Luke 9, 7 through 9 says, Now Herod the Tetrarch, this is who we're dealing with. I'll explain who he is. Heard of all that was happening. And he was greatly perplexed because he had said, it was said by some that John had been raised by the, from the dead. And by others that Elisha had appeared, and by others one of the prophets of old had risen again. That Herod said, I myself have beheaded John. But who is this man about whom I hear such things? And then the phrase is very interesting in the Greek. There's, there's a very active sense to this. He kept trying and trying and trying, the way we interpret it, to see Jesus. He's not after Jesus for what you and I would think you would be after Jesus. He's trying to figure out what he's dealing with here. And he has a whole dangerous view, a dangerous understanding of who the Lord Jesus is. And there is desperation on his, fact, on his part to see who Jesus is. Now, Herod's motives to meet, meet Jesus aren't pure. And, and this man, as we'll see here as this text unfolds, is extremely self-centered. He's extremely immoral. And and when he gets before him, when Jesus eventually gets before him, just the, the, the day of his death, all he wants to do is see some kind of show. 
some kind of miracle worker. See, his desires for pleasure have blinded him from his sin. He had no desire for, to see a savior. What he was trying to figure out is what he was dealing with here. Who was going to usurp his power? Was he going to have to deal with somebody resurrected from the dead that would show that he murdered John? Today, many people look to Jesus for re- wrong reasons. Uh, today's world and in a social justice world, there's a lot of people that look to Jesus because he was a great worker. He, he cared for the sick. He, he fed those who were hungry. He did all those things. There's a lot of people that try to embrace Jesus for that kind of philanthropist role that he played. And they embrace Jesus not as a savior, not because they're sinners and they need a savior to, to cleanse them of their sin. They embrace him for a lot of reasons other than that. Many will embrace Jesus because of their, uh, their desire to see miraculous things. Today, in the name of Jesus, all kinds of crazy things have done. And yet, that's not why the Lord did what he did. And we have counted many times today, as we look through the Gospels, that Jesus did miraculous works to show that the Father had given him authority over life and death, given him authority over all things, and only him and him alone could cleanse man from their sins. And yet, people have made a big parade out of Jesus. And so there is great danger following a misunderstanding of who Jesus is. He is God. He is the Savior of the world. He will soon after this hang on a cross and be judged by his Father for all of us. And yet, we see just as we see in this day where Jesus is often misused. Look at verse 16 with me. But when Herod heard of it, he kept saying, John, whom I have beheaded, has risen. See, see, this news of Jesus, it pricked a very guilty conscience of Herod, I believe. And this evil king had murdered, I mean, he murdered an innocent, the Bible says, an innocent, righteous, holy man. He murdered him. And not just put him to death, but put him to death in a barbaric way, as we'll see in this text. And the beheading of John the Baptist. It seems possible here as we study this text that Herod is haunted by um, anxiety and superstition. Uh, a lot of people back then believed in, that the dead spirits came back and tortured people who did things wrong. <laughs> that was very common in that day. And here he is trying to figure out who this is. But nowhere in the text do we see repentance. Nowhere in the text do we see Herod say, wow. I was wrong. There's no repentance here. There's no even seemingly remorse that John the Baptist was murdered. Possibly he's thinking that John came back to seek revenge. Well, let's look at this account on number two here, a wicked king in the death of the forerunner. As we drop into this passage here on our second point, Mark is, is he's recording a historical event and so it's almost like a flashback. So, so what's happening in the time frame is the disciples were sent out by twos. They preached the gospel. And, and during that, they came back after that. But, but they're recounting what's happening. And while they're preaching, Herod is hearing all of these things that are going on. And then all of a sudden, starting with verse 17, Mark drops back in into the account of the death of John the Baptist. And it really is this account of two things, a very, very wicked king 
in the death of the forerunner of Christ. And I want to take a moment just to walk down through this verse by verse quickly to look at this. As we go through this, I, I was struck by a couple of things. Number one, sin often kills the undeserving. And God allows it. Right now, our country is wrestling with abortion laws that kill children out of the womb. That child's done nothing. Though, biblically, all have fallen, even that child has a sin nature and, and is fallen, we really, in humanity, look at them as innocent. And so, here we have a nation that continues to move towards wicked immorality and innocent people die. And when you study the life of John the Baptist, particularly this last year of his life, do you know he was in prison for probably a year? We see the wicked king, Herod, kill an innocent who the Bible calls righteous and holy man. He dies at the wickedness of someone else. And God allows us. Now, God isn't to be responsible for this. Man is a sinner. They will stand judgment for their sins if they did not come to Christ and repent. But it is important as we look down through this that there are times that sinful people kill undeserving people. And this is the case. And this is where sin will take you. uh, Sin will take you to to have to deal with the righteous. Right? I, I think we'll see that in time here in America, we, we see it overseas in certain places. There is a goal to silence the righteous. There is a goal to silence those who stand for what's right and wrong. And the longer the church stands on the word of God, the more it will induce persecution. And we are not the first. We, we will not be the last. Anyone down through the ages, down through particularly this church age as we're in, that have stood for the Lord Jesus Christ and for the truth of the word of God have come underneath great persecution. And even at the cost of their lives. Many of the missionaries we support around the world, every day, every day, their life is in jeopardy for standing for the truth. And so there's a great teaching that I want you to catch as we go through John's life. I don't want you to miss it. He's not just a great man who came in front of Jesus and told some great stories. He's an example for us to live. Now, notice in verse 17 as we pick up and drop into the narrative as there's a recount of his death. So here in verse 17, we pick it up. For Herod himself, here's, he's, he's going to drop back to what happened, had sent and had John arrested and bound him in prison on the count of Herodias, the wife of his brother Philip, because he had married her. Well, Herod's wicked actions were not just because of John's popularity. He was certainly popular and people were following him. But there was a deep-seated desire for revenge here. There's revenge that's wanting to take place. John had been baptizing. You remember the stories, Matthew chapter 3. He'd been baptizing out by the Jordan River. He'd been calling people to repentance. It wasn't a baptism that we would see today in our baptismal where people come and say, "Uh, God has saved me through Jesus Christ. I've placed my faith in him alone. That's not what this baptism was. This baptism was, we're sinners. (laughs) And we need to repent of our sins because the Messiah is coming who we are going to need to put our faith in someday. And John preached that. But while he was preaching that, he called people to repentance. 
And when you study Matthew chapter 3, the masses were coming. The Bible says all of Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria came out to hear him. I mean, by the masses were coming out. And you've got to remember, these, these kings, these, these Herod-type individuals, religious leaders of the Jews at that time, they did not like their popularity being taken. And they all had their hand in the death of John the Baptist. So doubtlessly, John preached against the wicked, uh, immoral behavior of Herod. He also preached against wicked business practices and poor treatment of others. He challenged soldiers to, to not be unjust. John was dealing with that. But somewhere along the line, John heard of Herod's immoral life, and he didn't hesitate to go, that's wrong. And it's interesting that even though they were in a pagan world, Herod was a pagan. He was not brought up in a Jewish home even to know the Torah. They knew it was wrong what he did. And John has called him to the carpet. Not only Herod was mad, but notice in the end of 17, Herod's new wife is mad. Herodias, the wife of his brother Philip, and this is where we're going to get into the problems here. You think your family's got problems. <laughs> this one's really messed up. And now she's mad, Right? Herodias was not only Herod's, now think of this, he's, she is Herod's niece. And I'll explain all this. This is a twisted family tree, and not in a good way. Herod had married his niece. It was, it was from his half-brother, Philip I. Then what happened is Herod the Great, who was around, who tried to kill Jesus, remember that, Herod? He had a bunch of sons. Some he killed off because he didn't want them to take his throne. Others somehow got away because he had many women, slept with many women, had many wives. And so all these half-brothers are running around. So what happened is the Rome led to secession of Herod that his sons and even grandsons, you see farther in Paul's day, take over little portions of areas throughout the larger Sinar plain there and, and oversee all that. And they would have their little kingdoms and set them up. Well, Herod takes his brother's wife. And Herod was already married when he did this. He was married to a king, uh, Artes, who was a king down below the Dead Sea. He's married to his daughter while he takes his niece as his wife. You see how slimy this thing's getting really quick? And, and he unlawfully divorces this, this woman who's, whose dad is a king in another region he entices his niece to divorce his half-brother so he can marry her. Now, John's going, that's not right in any situation, let alone what God says about marriage. And so John calls him to the carpet. It was such a mess. Herod's uh, father-in-law of, of his wife that he cheated on he gets an army together and comes after him. This is all in history. Josephus writes on this. You can read it in Roman history as well. And he comes after Herod. Rome steps in, protects Herod, and they give up and they go back home and nothing ever comes of it. I mean, this thing is a mess. And, and, and lives are destroyed. You've got to remember, think about the children that are involved in this. You know what happens in divorce. We, we all have seen that. It's difficult. And God forgives. And if you're here today and you've gone through that, I pray you've confessed those things to the Lord and, he, and you're right with him. But it causes a mess. And anytime somebody calls that out 
Anybody time a church does church discipline or, or steps in and says, hey, brother, hey, sister, hey, one confessing to be a believer, you will be attacked. <laughs> one of the things we deal with all the time is somebody who's going through a struggle, they often come into your office to try to get you to believe their case in order to justify what they've done. It's very difficult on pastors. And we, we are held to the scriptures. And here John the Baptist is going, hey, that's not right only according to God. That's not right according to society. This is incest. This is adultery. This is beyond the scope of what God ever imagined for the reproduction of a family. And so here Herod is in a mess. And guess who's also mad at John the Baptist? His wife. His wife. Now look at verse 18. John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Now the text does not tell us how John confronted Herod, but most likely he used King Herod as an example. I don't, he probably put him in a sermon. He's down by the Jordan going, and you want to talk about immorality, here's what our king is doing. This is not what God wants. This is the type of repentance that we need to come to. We need to turn from our sin. Doubtless he probably did that. And clearly Herod responded by sending soldiers to arrest him, right? He gets arrested. So clearly John heard, uh, excuse me, Herod heard John speaking and said, uh, that's enough, go get him. And John is thrown into prison. And I think this is where John has a chance to personally rebuke him. Notice in verse 18, it says, and notice this in quotes in your Bible, for John had been saying, saying to Herod, directly to him, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So I think once he was incarcerated, John, uh, Herod would bring him up in front of him. We'll see a passage where he liked to listen to, in, to him in verse 20. And there John took full advantage, even though he's in prison, and it probably wouldn't have gone good. John probably could have gone up and said, you know what, hey, I didn't mean all that. <laughs> I'm really sorry. I, I'm sorry if that caused you any problems you know let's just sweep that under the rug you know and Herod would probably say okay you can go <laughs> that's not what the Bible says the Bible says in verse 18 he kept saying to him this is not right this is not right this is not right and of course that kept him in prison so this verse gives you gives evidence that John even after his imprisonment continued to expose Herod's immorality now, we believe John was there for probably a year of Jesus' ministry. He was in prison. And most likely, he was underground. Uh, they, have, they found these, these castles and stuff and, and have dug them up, and history tells us of this. And Herod built um, his palace in Tiberias. He built it up on a hill where he could see all, and he could stand out and see all of his, quote, pseudo-kingdom. He really didn't have any authority um, there, but to get taxes and sit around and drink uh, is basically what he did. Um, but he could sit up there. But that's not where John was. <laughs> John, and they've, they've, undug, they've dug this out, John was in the ground. You know, John probably did not see the light of the day for a year. Now, now think about this. I thought about this as a country boy myself. This boy was raised in the country. This, this boy was out running around wearing camel's hair, hair you know, uh, garments and eating locusts and, and preaching the gospel. And, you know, he, he was out there. And, and it's interesting. And my heart went out because I thought about this. I go, man, you locked me underground for a year. Will I recant? You know, this happened a lot in the time of the Reformation. 
They would go find these reformers, people who were standing in Christ alone, and they would lock them up. And they would torture them, and their goal was get them to recant. And those who truly did not believe by, by the faith that God had granted them would recant at some times. But many others, there are so many reformers through the years, as you go back and read those guys, they, they said, look, we'll let you out. You can get back to your family. Uh, you can do all these things. Uh, Bunyan was one of them. We'll give you freedom. Look, your daughter's blind. She's going to die if you don't get out of here. Just recant in Jesus Christ alone and stop calling us to repentance. And those men would not. There was one man particularly who signed a document and that he would, went home and fell under great conviction that he denied the Lord Jesus Christ, went back, recanted his recant. And they burned him to stake and he said, will you leave my one hand untied? And he said, why? Because I'll stick it in the fire first to let it burn first for, re- for recanting my Savior. This is what so many have gone through before us, friends, who sit in free America with a, a race about ready to happen with th- hundreds of thousands of people and people going to and from and nobody knocking in our doors at this point. This is what so many go through. And John the Baptist is such an encouragement when you study his life. He's in this dark, damp cell far below the earth's surface and he will not recant. He's holding to the truth. I often think about him and say, wow, what an encouragement. That all the way to the end of his life, he probably never saw the light of day again, but he did not recant. John the Baptist was a faithful prophet. He was a preacher of God. He confronted even the most powerful people about sin. And you go, well, is he running around just pointing sin out? Brothers and sisters, think through this. If you don't see your sin and the need for a Savior, you go to hell. One of the most gracious things we do, though we do it humbly and careful and not in a self-righteous way, is we must help people see their sin at some level. And when we stand in the seat of sinners or walk with mockers and do all those things, we, in a sense, walk with me here for a minute, you almost could pack their bags for hell. So there is a point where we as believers who followers of the Lord Jesus Christ who say, hey, friend, hey, one who confesses Jesus as your Savior, that's not of God. You're acting like one who rejects Jesus. And so here this man is, and and in the short narrative, you see this powerful preacher, but understand that he knew that if they did not see their sin, they would never come to know who Jesus was. And we fall under that same conviction. Look with me at 19 and 20. The saga gets worse. Herodias had a grudge against him. Literally has the idea of what we get the saying, an axe to grind. Right? Herodias has an axe to grind against him, wants to put him to death, but could not do so, verse 20, for Herod was afraid of John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, he kept him safe. And when, and when he heard him, so he would come before him every once in a while, he was very perplexed. Hmm, why? Because there's no spirit, no understanding, right, of what he's talking about. But he used to enjoy listening to him. So as a result of John's faithful preaching and confronting sin, Herodias has built this huge, deadly grudge against him. And it seems Herod protects John 
from his equally wicked wife, but, but Herod's scared of the Jews. These are the ones that are paying extra taxes for him to live this way. He's scared of any revolts that would bring Rome in. And if they couldn't control their area, then Rome would come in and remove them. So it's all about position. It's all about power. So he's not killing John, not because he, he doesn't want to, but because he's afraid. Matthew chapter 14, verse 5, this account recorded there says, Although Herod wanted to put him to death, he feared the crowds because they regarded John as a prophet. And he was. He was the last Old Testament prophet. This was because of John's popularity. But boy, you can notice the results of wickedness. There is great fear, anger, anxiety in, these, in this couple. They, they're afraid of him. And that's what sin does. And when people don't confess their sin and they stay in it, they will start to develop all kinds of fears and all kinds of anxieties. They will run to every doctor for every pill they can get because sin will mess with their heart, mess with their mind, mess with their life. And in the end, they'll find themselves completely out of uh, mental sorts. That's what sin does. And, and this couple is, you know, they're a classic They'd be on, a, they'd be on a, a commercial today. I mean, they, they have so many struggles because of their sin. Now, after Herod killed John, he became terrified that he'd risen from the dead, right? His act of vision. If this guy can beat death, what's he going to do with me? But despite Herod's wicked behavior, verse 20, look at that, says Herod would often listen to him. It's almost weird, isn't it? I don't like this guy. I'd really like to kill him. But if I do, I'm going to lose some popularity. But I think I'll still listen to him. Isn't that weird? People come to church, never come to faith, but like going to church because they hear something and it kind of stimulates them and, and um, they enjoy a, a preacher who gets excited or whatever uh, and yet never come to faith. It's kind of weird, isn't it? And I, and, and I think this is because inside the heart of all men, God put his truth. And they know what is being spoken. People know the truth. And yet they'll deny it. They'll suppress the truth and unrighteousness. And that's Romans 1.18 is exactly, Romans 1.20, excuse me, exactly what Herod's doing. And I'm sure John was saying, Herod, you must repent. The Messiah's coming. He's your only hope. You'll never see him in this sin. And Herod was just intrigued by him. Look at verse 21. This strategic or opportune day came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his lords and military commanders and leading men of Galilee. <laughs> now this, it, it, there's so much history. When you get into passages like this, you've got to go back and read a lot. The Roman birthday parties uh, were not something you wanted your children showing up at. This was one you go, yeah, son, you're not going to that party. This was full of the who's who of the kingdom. And everything there could be imagined to impress them and indulge them would be at a Roman birthday party. The Jews, most of them, would steer clear of them because it was full of immorality. And the party took even a greater immoral turn when Herod asked his own stepdaughter to dance in front of them. Josephus says her name was Salome. And they have this well-documented in history. 
verse 22 says that when the daughter of Herodias, that would be Salome herself, came in and danced. These words, they're, they're stronger in the original language. She pleased Herod in his dinner cast. And the king said to the girl, ask me for whatever you want and I will give it to you. Well, doubtlessly, this was some kind of erotic dance performed to a bunch of drunks and Herod and his friends as they watched on. The Bible uses a term here in English, it was pleasing to him. It's not a good term. This was bad. This was something that was completely godless, but it was within his nature and how he lived. And remember, this is his stepdaughter. That he parades in front of his friends. There's nothing good about this. Without thinking, Herod now has made a foolish promise. And we see this before. Anybody remember a foolish promise given? How about King Darius with Daniel? What'd they do? Did the same thing. They used things to pull on his pride, to dull his senses to right and wrong, right? Oh, king, sign this document so that nobody can worship anybody else but you. Daniel gets caught up in that. And here, drunkenness brings about a foolish promise. Look at verse 23 with me. And he swore to her, whatever you ask of me, I will give to you up to half of my kingdom. Well, in reality, Herod had nothing to offer. (laughs) Unlike his father, Rome had pulled away most of their power. They're just puppet kings. Uh, Herod could collect taxes and he could live a life of luxury, but he really didn't have a half a kingdom to give away. (laughs) That actually belonged to all of Rome. And yet, he would say in really some perverted way is, you can, you can have, you can be here with me. And it's just kind of foolish. He was already living there. Her mother was there. It's just a poor, drunken statement. But I think this was the opportune for this wicked wife, Herodias. I think this is what she was looking for. Notice in verse 24, and she went out and said to her mother, what shall I ask? Notice this response, without hesitation, the head of John the Baptist. I mean, there is no hesitation. This guy is a thorn in my flesh. I wanted to marry this man. I want to live the way I want to live. And this guy keeps saying it's wrong. I get rid of him. I don't want it. I don't want it anymore. And so... Um, verse 24 exposes this. And like Jezebel, I mean, there's such parallels as you go through this. I mean, Jezebel hated Elijah, right? You remember that? Boy, did she hate him. And Herodias hated John the Baptist the same way. And they were both wicked and vindictive. Uh, Jezebel against Elijah and Herodias against John the Baptist. Two of these prophets that God raised up to point to the truth of who he was. And they were constantly exposing sin and they were constantly threatened by these people. But she believed, and it's clear in this text, the only way we're going to shut this guy up is kill him. And that's exactly what she went for. It is very possible that she had this whole thing schemed out. Yeah, your stepfather's going to get drunk like he always does. Going to have all his friends, going to be showing it off. Daughter, this is our chance. We're going to take this guy down. Verse 24b, we see that it is without hesitation. Notice the end. And she said, the head of John the Baptist. There's no, well, let me think about this. Maybe, you know, maybe some, some value here. 
No, the head of John the Baptist. She knew exactly what she was after. Notice verse 25. Immediately, while this happens quickly, she came in a hurry. So she runs to her mom. Her mom knows exactly what's happening. She's got it all planned out, most likely. I want the head of John the Baptist. Salome turns around in verse 25, came back, hurried to the king, and asked, saying, I want you to give me, notice this little phrase here, at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. Who? At once. This, this was making him keep his promise. Doubtlessly, Herodias had bugged and bugged Herod. Kill him, kill him, kill him. And he had fought her off. No, we're not going to do that. This is, this is a problem politically. I've got to take care of this. Leave me alone, woman. I mean, you know, probably all along that line. But here it was to be done at once. Notice in verse 26, although the king was very sorry, yet because of his oath and because of his dinner guest, he was unwilling to refuse her. So Herod's immorality had exposed the lack of personal integrity And his fear of people became so great that he would murder. He would murder. In the ancient world, if you gave a public oath, you were bound to it. For a while. (laughs) People would forget about it. But he was in front of his his socially elite. He was was in front of the economic powers. He was with the who's who. And now he couldn't go back on his word. And though he was sorry, his fear of embarrassment was greater than the life of John the Baptist. This is what happens. This is what happens if you read our missionaries that were killed, you read things that have gone on down through uh, since Christ's death and resurrection and the explosion of the church around the world, we have seen these things happen over and over. There's always an attempt to silence the word of God. Verse 27, immediately the king sent an executioner and commanded him to bring back his head. And he went and had him beheaded in prison. This puppet pseudo-king didn't have much power. But what I did read was they had the power of the death penalty. It's one thing Rome gave them. They could almost kill anybody without question. No one would ask. He He didn't own the land and have power like his father did, Herod the Great. But he could kill people. And without hesitation, he has John the Baptist killed. Apparently, a head on a platter in verse 28. He brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to his mother. This was not uncommon in this barbaric world. And it was done to guarantee that the execution took place. Some of the history I read that they would take the head and disgrace it and women who were against other people who they didn't like uh, the history reports them stabbing tongues cutting tongues out of them doing all this mutilation to show their vengeance against this and though the narrative doesn't tell us you can imagine what Herodias did to the head of John the Baptist but let me turn this a little better way in one swift stroke of the executioner's blade John the Baptist saw his Savior. He is instantly with the Lord. He knows he is in that Abraham's bosom, as the New Testament would talk. He is instantly in comfort. 
the one that he had faithfully pointed to, the forerunner now had done his job. And the, think about this, the last of the Old Testament saints is dead. All the way, all the way from Adam forward, all now pointing to a coming king, one who could redeem man, the last of those Old Testament prophets who has seen the Lord Jesus Christ now is dead. And think about this. He was the first martyr for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ. His, his life had been a ministry of pointing to the Lord Jesus Christ. We first are introduced to him when he says in John 1, 29, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. When John's disciples began to see Jesus' ministry growing in John chapter 3, verse 22 and following in there. They began to come to John and said, hey, look, all are now going after Jesus. And John says these great words, listen along. John chapter 3, he who has the bride is the bridegroom. Wow. He's going to step out of the way. Who stands and hears him and rejoices greatly. But, oh, excuse me, but the friend of the bridegroom, that's John, who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. So this joy of mine has been made full. Go follow the Savior. That was John's message. Go follow the Savior. And John did that. And he ended that great statement. He said, you remember this? He must what? Increase and I must decrease. Very different than today's ministries. Today's ministries, ministries and preachers and teachers, they want to increase. And somehow along the way, the gospel gets lost. Everything becomes about man and who they are and what they need. But not John the Baptist. Not John the Baptist. His goal was the bridegroom. He was not going to bribe any glory that was coming to him. And he was willing to lay down his life to say, he's the one we follow. If you're following me, you're a fool. I can't save you. Follow him. And it was shortly after that that John was arrested. And like a good follower of the Messiah, he at times would say, hey, go ask Jesus. Make sure he's the one. Verse 29, is some tough imagery, isn't it? When his, that's John's disciples, heard about this, that he had been beheaded, they came and took away his body and laid him in a tomb. It's very difficult to read that, isn't it? John's disciples take this headless body of their leader and teacher and they bury it. Buried John's body. Once fiery preacher who spoke of repentance and the coming Messiah was now silenced. But his disciples came and reported. Matthew chapter 14, verse 12 says, his disciples came and told Jesus what had happened. And Jesus' ministry explodes after this. John had paved the way. He had parted. He made crooked paths straight. He took out the rocks and the hills and the sense, and he made a path towards the Lord Jesus Christ. And God had used that. It's important to note that in verse 30, there's a little bit of a change. We're all of a sudden dropped back into the, the daily life that's going on with these disciples that have come back. And our third thought is 
the need to get alone with Jesus. I love this little phrase. I'm so glad uh, the Spirit of God uh, inspired Mark to write it. Notice what happens, verse 30, you kind of drop back into Jesus and his apostles, his disciples there. And the apostles gathered together with Jesus and they reported to him all that they had done and taught. Notice that that's referring back to, to chapter 6, 7 through 13. So all of a sudden it's back to that scene. Mark has given the understanding of the death of John the Baptist, but now we're back to this scene. And look at he says, verse 31, And he, that's Christ, said to them, Come away by yourself to a secluded place and rest a while. For there were so many people coming and going, and they did not even have time to eat. And they went away in the boat to a secluded place by themselves. A need to get alone with Jesus. Isn't it amazing? He... He had sent these men out. Now the crowds are even more because not only Jesus is healing and speaking, his disciples are healing and speaking. The crowd now, there's 12 more that were sent out at least there. So Jesus now and these are drawing even bigger crowds. They can't eat. They've, they've really recounted. They've known the loss of John the Baptist. There is weight on the ministry. These men are tired. They've gone out. They've traveled. They've stayed in other homes. They've had to wait on God to provide for them both money, food. Remember, they were not to take any of those things. When Jesus gathers them back in, and I love this text, he says, let's get away together. Let's go get a breath. Let's go get some rest. And here, the disciples reported to Jesus all that had happened. The crowds were pressing, they couldn't eat, and Jesus says it's time to rest. I love getting alone with Jesus, don't you? There's just times where life is crazy, is it? Whether, whether you're in ministry or, or your ministry is out in the public, you know, a job, a business, all those type of things, there is such a need for us to get alone with Jesus and his word. Do you do that regularly? Do you just sit down in a quiet spot on a couch or in your backyard or maybe in your truck at break or whatever it may be and just get alone with Jesus and his word? So many of us carry such heavy burdens. And you're overwhelmed by things that are going on. Maybe you have a family like this. Maybe you have a, a very mixed up family and you got caught into, you got pulled into some things. Maybe you're going through those difficulties Friend, if you don't get along with Jesus, you won't get strengthened. That's what we do. We, we come and we drink from him. We drink from his word. He brings us to restoration again. And I love this. Well, let me quit with just a couple of lessons from the forerunner. Last thought here. We can't leave without this. Lessons from the forerunner. Make pathways for Jesus. Would there, anybody, would there be anybody in heaven, and this is my thought hypothetically here, would they point you out and say, that guy, that gal shared Jesus with me. That guy, that gal acted in a very kind, compassionate way, showed me the love of Christ, and I came to know the Lord. Are you making pathways for Jesus? See, I think John is such a good man to study. No matter what was against him, all of society, the immoral world, everything was okay. Do whatever you want. Here was John going, no, that's not what God says. Are you making pathways to Jesus? Secondly, 
be willing to lay your life down for the Messiah. You go, well, Scott, come on, we live in Ormond Beach or Daytona or Volusia County and there's no one pointing guns at us or telling us to go, we're going to go to prison and all of those things. And that's true. That's true. But are you willing? I'm not asking you to do that if it's not happening. I'm not going to run out and find some um, you know, anti-Christian group and say, you know, shoot me. I think we keep as free as we can and live with peace with all men as long as we can, but we don't compromise. But are you willing? I think every missionary that goes to the field somewhere, anywhere that is difficult, more difficult than the United States, I think they have to answer that question. Are you willing? As we come off missions, a lot of people say, well, you know, I don't know if the Lord's calling me to missions. And I said, well, I don't know. I I can't see into your heart. But I always ask them this question. Are you willing? The Lord may never call you. The Lord may never ask us to do what he did with John the Baptist, to stand in front of wicked kings and profess the name of Christ and his righteousness. He may not ask you, but are you willing? Would you stand if he asked you? Do you love the things God loves? I think this is what John the Baptist did. Do you love what God loves and hate what God hates? It's a very good question, isn't it? Because there are times as we run in this world and flick on the television and go to work with people, oh, there's a lot of things out there that pull on our heartstrings that are not of God. He said, well, I would never engage in that kind of unbiblical marital status of whatever. But we'll watch it on TV. I mean, think about that. And it's a challenge. As I looked at this, I said, Lord, do I love the things you love and do I hate the things you hate? I think that's what John the Baptist did. That's why God used him to the end. To the end, he used him. He loved what God loved. Will you humbly call people to repentance? And I think humble is very important. You can go down the speedway today and there'll be guys sitting on loudspeakers telling everybody they're going to hell. Um, I don't know. Maybe that's the way some guys do it. But you and I have people in our lives that need to be humbly called to repentance. Are you willing to do that? It might cost you. You may not get Thanksgiving invite. Are you willing to call people to repentance? Look, if, if you don't repent, you don't get saved. Do you know there's no salvation without repentance? There's no one who's just kind of stumbled into heaven. Faith actually produces repentance. And so repentance is such an important part of what we believe. We repent in order to be saved. We repent as saved people going, Lord, I have been loving things that you don't love. Will you forgive me? Will you give me the willpower to walk with you? Will you cause me to be in your word? So humbly call people to repentance. And then the last one, and we'll close with this. And I've got a great song to sing. Will you increase him? And will you decrease? Boy, this is dead against the American dream. (laughs) 
American dream says get all you can get because you're in a free country and you can have that stuff. John the Baptist says, I'm going to give up so I can make him better. Now, I don't think the Lord's telling us to go out and sell our homes and give, you know, live on the streets. God is gracious and provides. But what are we doing? Think about this as a church and think about this as an individual. How do we make him increase and us dis- decrease? Man, it's hard, isn't it? Because think about what we're going to do tomorrow. We're all going to go out and try to make a living. We're going to try to provide for those around. Those are all good things. But in amongst that, in amongst those good things that God calls us, think with me, brothers and sisters, are we, are we living a life for his increase? The world tells you to make you, yourself, increase. Make yourself the center. John said, no, I'm stepping out of the way for the bridegroom. I'm going to go into the shadows. It's a challenge, isn't it? Do you not love John the Baptist? You know we're going to get to meet him? He'll have his head on too. And I can't wait to shake his hand or hug him or whatever you do in heaven. I don't, I don't know what that looks like, but uh, he is a hero. And I hope, I hope you care for him and have learned a few lessons from him this morning as we looked into his life. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we confess that we often don't love what you love. We are prone to wander, prone to leave the God we love, as the old hymn says. It's hard to think about our lives, Lord, at times to realize that our goal should be such as John the Baptist, that we would want you, Lord Jesus, to increase and us to decrease. Lord, that simply means that those around us would see an increasing glorious person of Jesus Christ and we would be pointing towards that and not pointing towards ourselves. Lord, this is hard to do. We are by nature very selfish people. And if you would not have saved us, we could be a Herod, we could be a Herodias, we could be those people if it was not for your grace. But we thank you, Lord, that you gave us faith that caused us to repent And we now follow you. But Lord, we want to be forerunners. Who's in our life, Lord? What family members, what neighbors, what co-workers need a forerunner for the Lord Jesus Christ? One who points to a coming Savior. One who points to someone who can forgive their sins. Oh Lord, I pray that you would use us. Bring us under conviction when we draw attention to ourselves and versus our Savior. Help us be men, women, boys and girls in this room right now hearing this message to respond to be forerunners for the Lord Jesus Christ. We'll give you all the glory for these things. In Jesus' name, amen.